Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with FEDS or vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Staying Connected. This is your host, Katie, and before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in these podcasts are those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of the Marfan Foundation. The Marfan Foundation is not responsible for and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in them, nor does the information constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This show is not produced by or affiliated with the Marfan Foundation or the VEDS movement. If you missed the last episode, we talked to Lisa Voyo Johansson, a mother who lives in Norway and shared her daughter Karna's story with VEDS and her own experience coping with Karna's diagnosis. Today, I'm excited to share an interview with Jonathan Kyle, who lives in St. Petersburg, Florida and was diagnosed with VEDS following a series of life-threatening emergencies. Thank you so much, John, for sharing your story on the podcast and for helping raise awareness of VEDS. Let's go ahead and go to the interview. Hey, John, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast and sharing your story with Vets with everybody. Thank you for having me. So tell me more about yourself. How old are you? Where are you? And when did you find out you have Vets? Um, I am 47 years old. I live in St. Petersburg, Florida. And um, I was 42 years old. I was about a week after my 42nd birthday when I had an aneurysm rupture in my abdomen, my iliac, my left common iliac ruptured. Didn't know why. Uh, fortunately, was lived close to a good hospital and um, the doctors were able to repair that. And, you know, at that point they realized there was something going on. You know, my arteries were quite fragile. Um, it took several months. I had some more major traumas that um, I'm sure we'll talk about, but it was about probably six months later that my diagnosis with meds came through from a genetic test from one of my subsequent hospitalizations. And, um, and you know, that was kind of when that story started. So that was five, about five years ago. Yeah. Almost exactly five years ago. Actually, I think five years ago, like within the last day or two was my last of six major surgeries, uh, that kind of cascaded, um, that month or that year of the end of 2015 and 2016 into 2016. And did you know that you had an aneurysm in your iliac artery before it ruptured? Like, tell me more about no. that story. You know, I was totally oblivious. I, you know, I was, you know, you know, healthy enough, you know, I wasn't like a big exercise person, but I, you know, was always thin as many of us beds people are. And, I had actually been rock climbing the night before. I'd just, you know, been doing the rock gym that they'd opened in St. Pete. And my wife had just bought me an annual membership and we were going. And, and I mean, I was doing some, some probably some of the most strenuous, like lifting and turning and stuff that I'd ever done the night before. Mm -hmm. So in hindsight, that was probably a catalyst for that first event. Um, not to say that it wouldn't have eventually happened in some manner, but, uh, I see it as no coincidence that I had an aneurysm rupture the next day um, after, you know, when you're 42 years old and you take up rock climbing, you know, probably good to go see a doctor first, but they wouldn't have found anything. But um, 
so no, I had no idea. Um, I didn't even know what an aneurysm, I, when the, the doctor came out and said, you're having an aneurysm in your abdomen. And I was like, I, the only aneurysm I ever knew of was brain aneurysm because mm-hmm. the drummer from REM had one or something, you know? Um, <laughs> so I was confused. I started Googling and, you know, that's the worst thing you can do at that point in the ER. I never saw that doctor ever again. Um, and then the surgeon came in and there was my, I telling my wife on a text that I'm having an aneurysm. She's Googling. I mean, it's, you know, all the worst things you can do at that point. Um, so yeah, I'm short answer. No, I had no idea that, well, that, that anything was going on inside me. So then what happened next? Did you go through, did they stent it or how did they fix it? Yeah. So they, the, one of the best inter conventional cardiologist in the South happens to practice at that hospital. He and a local vascular surgeon who's also very good came in and they went in through my femoral artery and were able to, to put a stent in there. And at that point, you know, they were like, you know, vasculitis, some sort of inflammatory thing, autoimmune. So I was seeing a rheumatologist and they put me on like these massive doses of steroids, like, crazy amounts of steroids which is in hindsight probably not uh good for my situation uh, and you know they could see other kind of warning signs like in, in my you know my other iliac had a small aneurysm there was other kind of little twisty bits and all that but for four months while i was going to specialists and had one doctor like you know i won't you know i'm not throwing anybody under the bus one really highly regarded doctor was like nah, i see nothing wrong with you and then like a week later, I had a type A aortic dissection um, that went from my arch all the way down to my waist and up into my carotids and other, you know, just everywhere. I mm-hmm. collapsed at home and, you know, I, I was like, I remember specifically as I was falling, my phone was on the edge of the table and I thought, I'm going to need that. And I woke up some undetermined amount of time later. My daughter was three at the time. She was home with me um, because she was home from school that day. And she woke me up enough for me to do an emergency call on my phone. And I was rushed into, you know, emergency open heart surgery. And uh, they replaced my aortic arch and my ascending aorta. And everything else kind of resolved at that point. I mean, in terms of, you know, the blood flow returned everywhere and, you know, there were still existing dissections, but they were all stabilized. And it was during that extended hospital stay recovering from that, that my tissues were sent for a genetic test. And that took about 12 weeks mm-hmm. um, for, for that to uh, come back with VEDS, which I, you know, Googling everything, Lowy Dietz, Marfans, all these things that had come up, I never really run across vascular Ehlers-Danlos. And maybe had seen it, but it didn't quite gel with with my presentation and at that point i was already kind of i was booked for a preemptive surgery on my other iliac um mm. and that was it was like the two days before that surgery that my diagnosis came in and, and that set off a whole other chain of events so yeah so did that what did they change then well that aneurysm had grown significantly in those five months or so probably not hindered by the fact that I'd had a dissection and had been on massive amounts of steroids. 
So it didn't really change. The same surgeons who prepared my first iliac aneurysm were doing that surgery. So they were going in knowing, you know, the underlying condition. But when they went in, my femoral artery ruptured when they went to access the femoral for to as the point of entry. And so they spent, you know, a couple hours just trying to stem the bleeding. And they backed off and said, all right, then let's close them up and let's, you know, figure out who, what, what, what we should do about this aneurysm. Mm -hmm. And there was first talk of, of going to Tampa general hospital, which is where I had my open heart surgery, great team there. And they were like, we'll do this surgery. You'll be fine. But you know, you have, you know, an underlying condition that is requires, you know, a lot of, you know, analysis mm -hmm. at this point, we were already in conversation with, uh, with people at the Cleveland clinic and, that the surgeon in Tampa was like, look, if you can get into the Cleveland Clinic, uh, go there because they need to see you anyway. Mm -hmm. And so it was decided we put that surgery off for a few weeks and I'd go to Cleveland. And in the meantime, I had a DVT, I had a blood clot, sort of post-operative to that surgery. So my trip to Cleveland was bumped up. I was put on an emergency medical jet and flown to Cleveland uh, after they'd resolved the, the blood clot, but I had all these other issues going on went to cleveland and after a week of making sure i didn't have an infection and all these other things they went in and repaired that then you know what was like you know a routine day at the office for for them up there and that was in june of 20 or the very end of june of 2016 i flew home commercial two days later after that surgery and you know, watch the fireworks for 4th of July at home, you know? Wow. Yeah. What is that? So I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes here. So you're, you have this iliac aneurysm rupture and then you get that repaired and don't think there might be anything else going on. And then your aorta dissects like in a major, major way. And you have emergency surgery for that and they test you for vets and then you get the result back two days before you're supposed to have another surgery and then you have a blood clot like how are you feeling in all of this that's crazy you know the, it's funny the way you know the way the mind copes with these you know you're always kind of when you're in it you're really just worried about like what are what's what's the next thing? When is this going to, when are we going to do this surgery? You know, what's my blood pressure today? You know, that sort of thing. So when you're in it, you're just really dealing with it. There isn't really a time to sit back and look at it from 30,000 feet and go, wow, this is happening. Um, you know, I was very fortunate that you know, my wife, her response to all of this was to, to solve problems. Like, you know, she had a binder this big with all my medical results. She was talking to doctors. She would not miss a doctor on rounds. She was advocating for me constantly to the point that, you know, you know, there would be times when, you know, a nurse would come in maybe to give me a medication that the doctor had said, I thought we're not doing that. And it hadn't made it into the chart. She was catching things. Doctors would say to her, are you, are you medical? Are you in the medical field? And she's like, no, just, you know, been doing this for a while now. Mm -hmm. um, so I had that, you know, and you're also, you know, when you're post-operative and you're on, 
oxycodone or whatever and you know you're kind of not exactly keeping track of time you know all the time so you know so i can't say that like you know i was in the hospital three to three and a half weeks or something after that it didn't seem like i was sitting around bored i was constantly sort of in this you know state of emergency Mm-hmm. And then the funny thing was each time, you know, really with the VEDS diagnosis, that hadn't, I hadn't, you know, I had no group. I didn't know what that meant. All I had was Google at that point. I really was kind of like, well, once I get this surgery done, I'll be fine. After that, after we fix that, I was like, I'm a car. Like once we get the alternator fixed, everything is going to work fine. Mm-hmm. So, so I wasn't really thinking, you know, long-term, like I wasn't, you know, I was just hoping, you know, for my next birthday, honestly, you know? you kind of start to ask for less from life when you're in that situation. You know, it's later on that you get a little greedy, you know, and wish for more. So when did it really hit you? Like when, when were you able to take that 30,000 foot look? Um, I would say, you know, it kind of came on slowly. You know, I, I, you know, once I was home, one thing I didn't mention was when I had my open heart surgery, my left laryngeal nerve was was damaged or bruised or paralyzed or something so my left vocal cord no longer worked so i had no voice whatsoever all i could do was sort of this raspy whisper and so for all that time after my open heart surgery for about six months i had no voice so my medical condition was like really front and center all the time like not being able to talk i'd pull up to a drive-thru and forget how- <laughs> <laughs> they're not gonna be able to hear me oh, no. you know um you know my kids you know i had like a little like i carried a whistle you know like so i could make a loud noise if i needed to you know i had that i had a an injection into my my damaged vocal cord which now says hey you're talking about me now I'm gonna start getting weak on you so that that i can so that i could speak again and that you know so after that it was kind of like well now i sound normal i'm walking around i'm getting around it was kind of then that it started to all set in. What does this mean? I started to see a vascular MD at Cleveland Clinic. I saw a geneticist. I got on like the Facebook groups and, and started to commiserate with other people. And I started to realize, okay, now I know what this is. Here's how we tackle this. You know, every six months I'm going for scans. I'm taking a blood pressure medication, you know, you know, the, all of those things I have, re, you know, restrictions on my activities. It was probably, you know, six months to a year before I really started to go, okay, what does life look like and how do I prolong it? And, you know, what does it mean for the rest of my life? You know? Yeah. And you have kids too, right? Yeah. Yeah. We have two kids um, and now they're eight and 11. So they were much younger when this happened. And we had them tested, and unfortunately, they both um, got the mutation. I, I should say, I my mutation on the VEDS mutation is the null mutation. I have a complete deletion of the gene. Going back even further, I should probably have mentioned the, the very first warning sign of all of this was my mother passing away when I was five years old. So it all kind of it was adding up. It's like okay. You know, she had died of a heart attack when I was five, 1979. We didn't know why. And at that time, there wasn't a genetic test. There wasn't any 
solving of that problem was one of those things that just happens. So it wasn't, you know, the, so the mystery was sort of, okay, that's where it goes. She was adopted. So we didn't have any family history beyond her. So we didn't have like aunts and uncles and grandparents biological to, to look at a history, but we had her. So when we found out that our kids were positive for, for VEDS, we, we kept it to ourselves for a while because they were quite young, but we did know that we wanted to tell them while they were young enough that they would feel like they always knew it as mm -hmm. they got older, you know, and we didn't want to wait until they were, you know, 18, you know, or something like that. I mean, obviously someone could find out that they have beds and their kid could be 18 when they find out. So we just didn't want them to feel like we'd held on to this information when they were ready for it. And being fortunate that they were young enough that when we did tell them probably a year or two later, they took it in a, in a way that kids are resilient and they were okay, you know, and, and they, they, they took it in stride. You know, my son knows that he'll never be able to play football. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have a firm belief that, you know, I have dealt with this disease with almost 40 years of the medical advantage that my mother didn't have, you know, 1979 to, uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. um, my kids are going to have 35 years of medical science on their side. And, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, the, with the null mutation, the, the later onset and the better surgical outcomes that go with that, you know, we're hopeful just knowing their whole life. You know, when I was in my 20s, I moved every year. I was moving furniture. I was doing, you know, stupid things and not monitoring. I had I was always pre-hypertensive on my blood pressure, but never enough that that doctor would put you on a medication. Well, obviously, if we'd known that I had VEDS, I would have conducted myself very differently in my 20s and 30s and would have been monitoring the situation. So I feel like anybody who knows in advance can conduct themselves and, 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 and you know, take precautions that I certainly, you know, rock climbing the night before an aneurysm. <laughs> you know, just, you know, wouldn't have done, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're taking it in stride. Um, we're, mm -hmm. we're being real about it, but we're not, uh, letting it, you know, bring us down, you know, as much as you can. Yeah. And you mentioned this kind of like, it comes up, it comes across to me as a kind of like a hopeful feeling, right? Like you, you acknowledge that the medical system is much different for you than it was for your mom and hopefully will be much better for your kids. Right. Is that, is that kind of how you cope with it? Like, how does it feel being a parent to, to two kids with VEDS knowing that you have VEDS yourself? Um, well, I'll tell you, I mean, it was a very difficult day when we got the news, when I got that phone call. I mean, it was really probably the hardest moment um, because I can deal with myself, I'm an adult, mortality. These are, these are things I can, I have to deal with, you know, and I'm not saying that that's easy, but I, but, but, you know, for the kids, I, I, it was, you know, it was crushing to hear at the time. And at then it was very, still very early on in my knowledge of VEDS. So I was really, I had no idea what it, that's what it meant for them. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was certainly difficult. Um, but, you know, once we educated ourselves and sort of 
looked at the big picture and and started to sort of realize what does this mean in our day-to-day life you know certainly we have to make uh we have to make changes in order to acknowledge you know their condition there are certain activities that we're not going to encourage them to do um and um but that is it is what it is there are lots of things they still can do you know mm-hmm. so i mean fortunately like i i you know i played tennis and and you know baseball and stuff like that but i was never going to like be good enough in a sport that i was going to end up in the weight room for it or or play a physically you know i was never going to play hockey or football or anything like that uh i did not have the physical girth to do some of those things so and my son is skinny as a rail he's not not being told he he can't play football is not a disappointment for him you know (laughs) (laughs) probably like well that's a relief yeah so you know and, and the fact that they have taken it you know, kind of matter of factly and uh, is, is, you know, a testament to them as well. Yeah, that's great. I've heard that it from other people who have known since they were kids that it was kind of something they always knew and that that really helped them. Yeah. Um, I know from being diagnosed when I was 28 that that was a, that was a big shock. And it was also yeah. this big kind of like retrospective moment that explained a lot of things I had been through when I was younger. So I'm wondering, you know, other than your family history with your mom passing away when you were young, did you have any signs when you were younger that you had this? You know, I mean, other than like, I always remember people commenting like, oh, you have such big eyes, you know, when I was young, um, you know, with, with my, with the null mutation, the, like I have, I am, not hyperflexible in any manner whatsoever. I've never had any issues with dislocations. I've never had all those other sort of presentations, the sort of clinical presentation. You know, I did have like a narrow palate and I had all kinds of braces and stuff like that. But I I did not have like, you know, I never had issues with stitches, with sutures and stuff like that. And and bruising was never like you know, I, I definitely bruised maybe a little easier, but it was never enough that anybody, no one ever commented. I never thought I was any different. So, so it wasn't like, oh yeah, this all adds up, you know, because of, none of it was really that prominent, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in my, in my, you know, case. So it was really more like this family history piece. Yeah. And, and I was actually, you know, through the power of ancestry.com and Facebook, I, found my biological family and randomly a woman who i suspected was my first cousin was friends with somebody that i went to grade school with because i grew up out in california and i was like i didn't you know i wasn't like trying to like hey we're cousins i was really trying to reach out to say if anybody in your family is having sudden you know, vascular issues or has passed away from this in the past, I can tell you why. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to her and we had some back and forth and she was a little like skeptical at first, like, really? You know, I said, I had like my mom's adoption papers, which in 1948 or 46 or whatever it was when she was born, like adoption papers were like three pages. It was like, you know, easier than getting a cell phone. And I was like, here it is. And she was like, wow. And, and it turns out like her, she had an uncle and a grandfather who had aortic ruptures in their 60s, but they none of them knew anything about 
my mom having existed, she would have been the oldest there, you know? So she was able to kind of broach it with her family in a way that, that where she was comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, you know, we're friends on Facebook, but that's, you know, that was, I was really just like, <laughs> I'm just trying to help. I don't want to be, I'm not coming to visit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to make sure I understand. So your, your biological mom passed away when you were five mm-hmm. and then were you adopted by another family or was she no, adopted? She was adopted. Okay. I, my dad was fine. <laughs> my dad still is. He's 84 years old now. Okay. Um, my brother, I have an older brother and sister that are about both about 10 years older than me and neither of them have that. Okay. And so, you know, I was, you know, the much younger brother. Um, but yeah, so my dad, um, he, he remarried a couple of years later and my stepmom really was my mother figure for, and, you know, as a child, like I always, you know, said, I, I kind of got the easy end of it because I was so young when my mom passed away and my dad remarried to a wonderful woman. Mm-hmm. I, I really escaped what could have been, you know, seen as like this tragic childhood. It was much harder on my brother and sister because they were teenagers when my mom passed. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so, yeah, but I, I you know, I kind of lucked out um, in, in that regard. So moving forward with the knowledge that you have VEDS at, you know, at 42 when you're diagnosed and now you're 47, like, are there ways that you cope with that knowledge or like how how does it feel for you now several years after the initial blow you know it's interesting because like initially like i my mind was racing and part of that was probably the steroids that i was on and sort of like you know there's after open heart surgery they say there's like emotional like people go into depression and, and all this stuff and so i certainly was in hindsight, I was dealing with a lot of emotions and I'm not trying to get overly spiritual or certainly not religious uh, specifically, but I took up meditation uh, in, in regard to, I mean, basically I got, I found an app for the iPhone and I would take a break in the afternoon and just close my eyes and turn on these sounds and breathe for 10 or 15 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. And so to call it meditation is, you know, sounds new agey and everything, but really it's just a matter of stopping and taking a break in the middle of the day and regrouping and moving on. It started out that way. And I, you know, I started reading a lot of just, you know, books on, you know, spirituality and just, you name it, just kind of from every angle, you know, from, you know, just to kind of soak it in, you know, Mm-hmm. And I can't say I found answers from any, any, anywhere, you know, from Buddha or God or whatever in terms of, you know, aha, I got it. But the, the act of sort of pausing and, and trying to, and reading, you know, different outlooks was comforting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it takes your mind off the, off the scary part and sort of, focuses on, you know, you know, we're all, everybody's got their cross to bear, right? I mean, everybody has something uh, to, to deal with eventually in their life. And this is ours when we're, you know, why would we be the exception? You know, that's sort of my attitude, you know, it's like, I could, 
And my dad, he said to me once, he said, you know, you can't give up. You can't wallow in this. You got to share your kids out to live. And, you know, he's right. I mean, my dad picked himself up in his 40s after his wife had died and moved on with his life, you know, with while raising three kids, you know, we, you show, you know, show, show people how to do it. And some of it is fake until you make it too. You know, some days you just don't feel like doing it. But if you <laughs> act like you're doing it, eventually you might actually find yourself doing it. You know, I was, this is sort of tangential to that, but I was very lucky yeah, I, I was a salesman. I worked, I was a motor oil salesman. I drove around in my car. I had a sales territory here in Florida and that was my job um, for 10 years. I'd been doing that. And my wife was always, Monica was always afraid that I was going to have a car accident because I was driving thousands of miles a week or a month. So she insisted that I buy really good disability insurance and we did. And so when, when I was diagnosed with VADS after my open heart surgery, my insurance company basically was like, if you can't go back to your job, you're, you're disabled by our definition, not the definition of social security's disability. Or, um, and so I didn't have to worry about like the stresses of how are we going to pay all these bills? And, and, you know, so I, I was, I did not have to go back to a stressful sales environment and or tax myself physically that way. That has been like the, the sort of silver lining to all of this was that I had a really good disability coverage. And if I'd known I had VEDS, they probably wouldn't have sold me, you know? Um, yeah. So financially we were able to move on with, you know, the vast majority of our household income and and, you know, that's sort of what led to really the last four years, you know, each summer, my family is taking these big, huge road trips while the kids are out of school. And with COVID, we kind of expanded that. So we've traveled a lot, seen a lot of the country and, and had the luxury of, of spending a lot of time as a family. Um, we're very tight knit in that way. So, yeah. And you do all that traveling in an RV, right? Yeah, we we started out in a van, like a like a Dodge van van, not like a minivan, not like a cool van life van, but like a Dodge <laughs> van, the kind you like hide from. And we did that for a year, and then we had one of those cool Volkswagens with the tent on top, but it was still a little crowded for four of us. So last, so at the beginning of COVID, we bought an RV so we'd have our own bathroom and shower and everything. And we've spent in the last year and two three months we've spent like five six months in that thing total wow. not all at once you know two months here a month there a couple weeks here we just got done with two months all the way up to maine and back and 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 then so it's kind of been a thing i write a blog about it and you know people on social media are like yeah it's so fun yeah i i love your blog like i love the way you write and it's it always it never fails to like make me chuckle in certain parts of it like you just do a really great job do you want to plug that blog and tell people where to find it sure i mean it started out kind of when we had the dodge van and it was the coolest van like it was you know this big dodge conversion van with the carpet inside and everything. Mm -hmm. we so we called the blog don't make me turn this van around and so it's don't make me turn this van around.com. And, you know, it, it's kind of a combination of parenting and, and travel and beds and whatever I feel like writing about, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
lots of photos and stories about our, our travels. And it was sort of like it took on a life of its own. You know, it was like we started this blog and now it's like keeps going, you know. I love it. I love it. the RV days. So. <laughs> well, I think a lot of medical professionals, I know of quite a few who listen to this podcast anyway, maybe not a lot, but a few. If there is anything that you would want a medical professional who's listening to this podcast to know about vets or what it's like living with it, what would that be? I guess, you know, I'm assuming a medical professional watching this is probably already fairly well versed in VEDS. Um, I, I think, I mean, I can't say enough for the, the confidence that I have being under the care, in my case, the Cleveland Clinic. They've, they're my, my doctor, I've had two uh, vascular MDs there. My surgeon is the head of vascular surgery um, and the cardiologist that I'm with there. They, give me comfort in knowing that like I'm they're, they're really looking at my at my you know my existing aneurysms and my dissections and monitoring them uh my my, my uh, aortic valve has got a little bit of a leak they're really cautious like my my vascular doctor is really cautious and and so you know I feel good knowing that I have really competent people care um and and that is not to say that my surgeons and my vascular doctors here locally um aren't excellent i feel very comfortable in their hands you don't need a surgeon who's an expert in vets when you need when you have an emergency what you need is a really good surgeon you know generally you like and but to have somebody you know even if they're halfway across the country who is taking a look at you every six months to a year to advise you, you know, on your day-to-day -day life and on any, you know, sort of, if there are preemptive things that, that you can do surgically that are recommended, uh, I think it's very important. I would say if, if, you know, sometimes I, when I talk to other people with VEDS who they're, they're very happy with their local cardiologist. I, I'm still, and this is not to say that a local, that, that just some regional local, I'm not trying to say that they're in any way as, you know, as competent as somebody else, but someone who specializes in the really rare cases, who sees a lot of them, who has the time to read the literature that is, that is out, it's important, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I can't expect my cardiologist here, because he's got one VEDS patient to read every journal article that comes out about VEDS. Like, that's my job. That's my wife's job. We're <laughs> here to tell him, you know. But I also know that when I go in, if I have an emergency, they know I have VEDS. They know they're going to be really careful. They're going to move slow. They're going to take the necessary uh, precautions that, that you have to do with a person with VEDS. A vascular surgeon cardiac surgeon in Tampa who who saved my life you know told my wife that it was the most difficult surgery with the best possible outcome that day um, but he knew that there was something greater that he couldn't fix you know yeah. or something else going on that he couldn't fix the next day he did four heart transplants and but I was his difficult case that week yeah. you know um, so that tells you that you know 
these surgeons know what they're doing, but it's really, I think it's really good when they talk to each other. So I, I probably the answer is no, I don't have advice for, for medical professionals, but I hope that they know how important they are to our psyche. You know, maybe that's the thing, you know? Yeah. I love that. Like just having that knowledgeable person on your team or one who's willing to consult with someone who is yeah. like that puts me at ease, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story on the podcast and for just raising awareness and everything. My pleasure. Any last parting thoughts for anybody listening? Um, no, I would just say, you know, if, if people are trying to connect and you're not on social media, um, you can always reach out to me on my blog. If you're, if you want to chat with somebody who has vets and, um, I'm always willing to talk um, about my experience or, or offer advice. I will tell everybody who's watching this, that Katie is a wealth of information. Like she, she's, and she's got everybody on speed dial. <laughs> I hate to put her in that situation, but, um, you know, it's, it's important to have, to have the network, um, because you can get answers, questions answered quickly. And a lot of times it's the unknown that brings the anxiety out, you know? Yeah. Thank you. It is a, it's a really connected community and there are lots of different ways to get connected with people either individually or through the Facebook groups or through like resources like the Veds movement support groups that are out there. So you don't have to go through this alone. If you're watching this, like, or listening to it, you don't have to go through this alone. There is always a way to, way to connect with somebody else. So Absolutely. thanks for bringing that up, John. And My thank pleasure. you so much for joining the show. Thanks a lot. Thank you everyone for listening in today and a huge thanks again to John for sharing his story on the podcast. I hope you all really enjoy the show. I hope you get a lot out of it. This podcast and all of you really mean so much to me and it would mean so much as well if you shared the show far and wide to help us raise awareness of vets. Thank you so much for doing that. Be sure to subscribe to the show and stay tuned for the next episode on December 4th. We'll be talking to Karen DeCourcy, a woman with vets who lives in North Carolina. Thanks so much again, and I will see you soon.